You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, folks. This is Annie and hello, Jordan. How are you? Yeah, doing good. How about you, Annie? I'm good. I'm very good. It's It's a nice day outside. Apparently, everybody was able to be... Fling their masks, this gay abandon at twelve o'clock. I was thinking when <laughs> I, I was thinking as I was writing in that um, how one day apparently nobody has to worry about germs. The next day uh, we, you know, like you know, one day we do and mm. one day we don't. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. yep. I mean those those germs. Yep, at eleven fifty nine p.m. That's when you know COVID <laughs> is gone. That's it. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, with, with respect, it's um, it, it was really good that we got on top of the situation with Australian Open really quickly. Um, we'd seen how you know just even a little blip over Boxing Day, yeah, that set us back a little bit. But it it just shows that you know I think there's while, while I don't feel patriotism, I certainly feel a degree of pride that. Melbourne has managed to get on top of it pretty oh, well. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. We've really I, I, set a good standard I overall. don't think you need patriotism. I think you, mm. you just realise uh, the value of solidarity, actually. That's a good way of putting it, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, uh, the whole point of uh, creating uh, the nonsense of patriotism and nationalism and all the other things that go with it uh, are really to uh, divorce the ordinary person from uh, us from our actual social connections, mm, mm. Uh, overlay them with uh, the uh, desires of a um, a power hungry, uh, and they like to call themselves an elite, mm. and that's <laughs> another and that's another tragic. Mm. You uh, could see those social concept. connections through lockdown, though. I think a lot of people have that shared sense of pride. Um, so yay, you know, full full masks off restrictions, and I'll smack the microphone again in future if I ever get excited about it. <laughs> you know, second time's a charm. Um, yeah. So obviously this week's been pretty busy. We've got a lot on um, the show. Would you like to tell me and tell listeners what's going on for today? Well, we'd like we'd like to have a little bit of a chat to begin with uh, because there's a whole range of uh, announcements we want to make because uh, different people have got different things happening. Mm. But uh, also uh, a little bit of a chat about the, uh, the abysmal uh, announcements by the federal government uh, about the uh, increase in the dole, uh, which is uh, basically uh, uh, a uh, Well, it's three dollars fifty-seven a day, but oh, they're God. trying to crow about it, saying that it's uh, earth-shattering fifty dollars um, overall, um, yeah. and uh, also to say change the discussion around uh, making it palatable to the conservatives in the parliament 
and the uh, em- employer class. Anyway, that's mm. one of the things we'd like to as, talk about. Uh, as Kevin said on City Limits this week, you know, people will be, you know, stripping off and running rampant in the streets with their newfound wealth, these bludgers with their $3.57 per day. Yeah, know. exactly. God. We're no. going to hear... We're really that depraved. Come on. <laughs> we're, we're going to hear from Larissa Payne. She is one of the activists who is uh, a, uh, part of the... Um, Occupy movement in Sydney. Mm. Uh, Mel's the uh, Melbourne Activist Legal Service had a a, um, a webinar, a fascinating webinar that was put together by Extinction Rebellion, and it was about what did we learn uh, from Occupy? Occupy, and it's mm. a perfect uh, overview of. Uh, the uh, struggle effectively for uh, social um, empowerment, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, so we're going to hear from Larissa Payne. We're going to move on to uh, uh, hear from Over the Wall. Uh, mm-hmm. That's uh, a fantastic uh, encapsulation of some of the uh, struggles that working class and uh, unemployed people uh, are uh, dealing with at the moment in Australia. Yep. Uh, we're moving on to the fabulous uh, This Is The Week That Was with Kevin. Kevin, of course, is back. He was uh, back last week and uh, he settled in and he's in full form and f- uh, flight this week. Hmm. And uh, we're going to finish off with a um, a piece that came from Latrobe Asia. Um, they had a, fa- a fascinating um, discussion with uh, that included a panel called uh, uh, Hunter Marston, who's a PhD from uh, ANU, Huawei New, who's a peace and women's rights activist, founder of uh, Women's Peace Network in Myanmar, and uh, the uh, former um, ambassador to uh, uh, Australian ambassador to uh, to Myanmar, right. uh, Christopher Lamb. Now mm. I had to cut Christopher Lamb out, but what we're going to do is find out what's actually going on in uh, Myanmar at the moment and why it's so important, and also Australia's uh, tentacles into that country that uh, probably make us a uh, makes it really important for Australia to actually stand up. Uh, for the democratic rights of the people. Uh, my daughter actually went to Myanmar not very long ago and she said oh, that, okay. uh, and her impression of the country was in a deeply oppressed uh, uh, and impoverished um, population. Right. Uh, because, or like it, it, it's like it was, um, and it will do that to you if you uh, had years and years of a uh, uh, greedy dictatorship uh, run by a military that is basically filling its own coffers. Mm. Um, very, mm. uh, everybody's. Uh, it's very clean and uh, uh, restricted, uh, and uh, because uh, and all the buildings and the mm. uh, and all is, the is rest it, of it, it are sort of planned city, or is it more laid out akin to something like the Philippines, where where it's um you know a dictator imposed on what's relatively you know natural growth to some extent. No, 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 the, no, 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 it, 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 it's, it's... It, a lot ci- more planned? Yeah, yeah, the city, mm. the places there are um, uh, post-colonial. Uh, mm. The buildings, no, nothing's been, um, uh, there's no, uh, it's like living in a house with a landlord that doesn't look after it. Mm. Uh, yep. But the people right. who live in it are keeping it tidy. Yep. 
Yep. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's yep. it, it's over, really. Mm. Mm. You know, there's mm. uh, but of course, uh, there's lots of natural resources in that area, and um, obviously, the military have got connections and have had long connections with uh, uh, Anglo-American and other Australian, obviously, connections. Mm. And that's why it's important Business to get this out there. Yeah. Anyway, we'll hear about it. Oh, that's, for sure. For that's sure. why it was important to bring it to people's attention today because the people who are on the street there are in a perilous situation. Mm. Uh, and uh, basically, as uh, the Christopher Lamb says, he doesn't think it's a coup because it's not over. Mm. I mean, if it was a coup, it would be over and these people would have uh, uh, managed to rein in the, the horse that uh, they had been running away from them. Mm. Uh, but in actual fact, uh, as uh, Weiwei says, this is a criminal class yep. that have, uh, are trying to re-establish their control over the wealth and the uh, power in that country. Mm. No, Completely exposed. Yeah. Completely exposed. So but we'll, anyway. Yeah, we'll get into it. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're going to do. As we come marching, marching, Hi, this is Renata from the IWG Collective. We're calling feminists of all genders and feminist allies. March 8th is International Women's Day and this year it's special as it's also Labor Day in Victoria and a public holiday. This year's rally in March will kick off at 2pm at the steps of Parliament House and then we'll make our way through the CBD to the State Library. Come early and be part of a momentous event. There will also be a limited after party at the Queen Victoria Women's Centre. See you there. A 3CR supporter. As we go marching, marching, we're standing proud and tall. The rising of the women means the rising of the soul. Or as we like to call it, the International Working Women's Day. Yes, absolutely. Isn't it exciting? So that's that was actually one of the things that we were going to talk about because it's such a big event coming up and I'm I'm actually really excited to, you know, get stuck into the march and and be a part of it. Fingers crossed I'll actually be able to make it and uh go along because um yeah, it's it's such a um conflagration of of events. It's almost like an aligning of the stars in some respects. Yeah. And and really get yourselves into it. We all need to get behind this kind of cause because gender equality does translate to real social equality. And this is just one struggle as, uh, you know, part of the broader social movement. Um, yeah, but it's a, it's a really overdue one. It's a really long, you know, standing campaign. Get in amongst it. Um, and particularly, particularly, we are definitely looking for people who can um, lend their aid in, um, you know, making sure that the march goes smoothly, um, because these these events historically have been kind of open to a lot of um, trans exclusionary, um, you know, responses, um, obviously fascist responses, that kind of thing. So uh, just bring yourselves, bring prepared, you know, be prepared adequately, and what, um, bring a cut lunch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Always <laughs> a good suggestion. Yep, I'll be well, there. I'll be there with my you know field medical kit, and um, you know, see if I can bring some headphones and a microphone too. That'd be that'd be quite nice. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exciting stuff. Well, um, on the uh, coalface, uh, there's a couple of things for people to be aware of. 
Uh, one of them is uh, today at 12 o'clock at um, 49 Newman Street in Thornbury. Mm-hmm. The, uh, um, what do they call themselves? It's important. The Renters and Housing Union. Yes. yes. These so, fabulous people, these good people. Great group. Um, I'm going to read you what they've said. Uh, they want people to be there at 12 o'clock. This is 49 Newman Street, Thornbury. Keep Louise home. Louise Good, a 35-year-old local Thornbury neighbour, was forcibly evicted from her home of 29 years Louise made her home as part of a housing cooperative to provide long-term affordable housing to people in need. Last Tuesday, the community housing company Common Equity Housing Limited contracted a security guard and fencing company to install fencing around Louise's home. Louise has been forced into homelessness to abandon her belongings and leave her two cats behind. It's disgusting. Yeah, it is. Louise is determined to return to her home and to set an example that everyone deserves a safe and secure home and she needs your help. Absolutely. Now, the amazing thing, of course, is that Thornbury has now become a very... uh, Uh, Well, a a suburb where uh, people want, you know, like like the actual housing values, Mm. etc. It's it's, it's desirable. desirable. That's the word. I couldn't Mm. quite find it. But anyway, so today at 12pm, 49 Newman Street, Thornbury, uh, they want you to go there. Now, uh, if you want to find out more stuff, www.rahu.com. Dot org dot au. That's the Renters and Housing Union. Group. Mm. Great group too. They had a they had a renters' rights meeting this week, which I unfortunately missed. But um, they're they're all rank and file. They very deeply care about quality, ethical housing. And to be honest, this campaign is particularly gross. Um, to be able to contract a private company to instill an eviction essentially, on someone. I mean, you're, you're bypassing any sense of, um, you know, that when we think of evictions, we think of the police going in and muscling someone out of their home in response to a landlord or someone in the capitalist class essentially saying, look, this person has been a poor tenant or they're overdue on their rent, you know, some, some discussion like that, right? It's never... It, well, I mean, it's far less often been the actual um the the capitalist class just employing someone to put security fencing around the house happens all over the place here and the other thing about it is of course i mean this is a a line in the sand between the the classes in this society absolutely um the thing is that uh also this business about being part of a cooperative a housing cooperative that then gets taken over by another organization called Common Equity Housing Limited, a mm-hmm. business, a private business. Now it would you're going to go there today, and you're going yes. to find out a I'm little bit more about this. So mm-hmm. next mm-hmm. week we'll hopefully get, be able to give you more information, and hopefully you'll be able to go to 49 Newman Street, Thornbury at 12 p.m. and help out as well. Yeah, if you and see me there, out, say good day, good day. You know, get, yeah, exactly. Yeah, get amongst it. Now, also uh, on Friday, the um, 
McCormick workers in Clayton, Victoria, uh, well, here in Melbourne. Yes. <laughs> uh, w- went on um, in, in death. Uh, there's been a bit of dispute going on. They, uh, they're yep. now into protected industrial action of an indefinite stoppage uh, at the McCormick's uh, a site in Clayton, and, and it's the most important Australian facility for this mega corporation. Uh, uh, the corporation um, will come into your actual lives because they make uh, uh, aeroplane jelly and rice ariso and uh, Keen's mustard. I mean, we've we've got the list of products in front of us. It's pretty extensive. You know, there's about five to 10 different sources for McDonald's and KFC. There's, um, you know, about three or four for Hungry Jacks and Red Rooster. This is a, you know, pretty big supply operation. And that's not counting these major, major um, Australian icons of products like Aeroplane Jelly, like Keens, like, um, you know, Risa Riso. Well, the point point is, of course, they're probably not suffering as a company, no, right? Now, these workers not. have not had an increase in wages for five years. What they're actually asking for is a, um, a maintenance of their conditions and uh, a modest pay rise of 3% for uh, each of those a, years. As a yeah. result of infl- yeah. in, uh, inflation. Now, what, what has this company done? What this company has done is said that uh, they want to uh, have no increase and to strip workers' conditions, including taking away penalties, overtime loading, and meal breaks. Yeah. Now, now this is um, now the point is that this is where the battle lines have been uh, are being drawn. So you've got the in, uh, you know if we bring back the camera, what you've got is the industrial relations laws in the federal parliament uh, beating workers making work uh, imprecarious uh, precarious work mm. uh you know uh, m- uh making it uh, uh just solidifying it into our landscape mm. and at the same and making low wages really low and consistently low having no conditions people can't even have meal breaks so they're going to have a toilet bo- uh, you know a, a bottle for people to piss in yeah. you know so they can't you know it's a slow stripping back of conditions and that's where it hurts the most as well because it's not just the the pay that we take home at the end of the day it's the quality of the actual job itself and it's it's cutting into society the ability to have you were actually saying this uh, jordan you know these jobs that uh, can be at any time, any length. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. impossible to uh, build. We're slow, slowly moving into this really heavy end of the neoliberal doctrine, where you know you are essentially prostituting more and more of yourself at more hours. You are working more often in stranger conditions, in unusual working environments where, you know, you're, you're not actually getting any substantial increase out of it. But because everyone else is doing it, it's necessary to stay competitive. It's necessary to have a job. Well, it's, I mean, almost. what it is, is it's a destruction of society and it's a destruction of solidarity. And that's what it leads to, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so uh, yeah. the people who are at this site, McCormick workers, uh, deserve your support. So if you're in a position to, you probably should uh, see if you can uh, go there and uh, or give... Um, 
your support in some way. Yeah, go down, uh, give them a, give them a honk with a horn. Um, I've heard that uh, there's about eighty to a hundred workers who have gone on strike outside the front of the facility. Um, it is fairly highly unionized, which is great to see. That's the um, UWU. Yep. So the United Workers Union, and um, yeah, hopefully I'll be uh, covering that and seeing how it unfolds uh, through the week. But this is really fresh industrial action. You know, this was only really taken place from about Thursday, Friday this week, and it's only... Well, you know, you're going to hear it on 3CR because, like hell, the mainstream media is going to report this. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, now, yeah. Um, this leads us on to the issue of the announcements regarding uh, the dole, uh, mm. or what uh, our fearless leader likes to call job seeker. Now, of course, this uh, overall plan of uh, uh, in uh, cementing uh, wage uh stagnation, uh, reducing workers' rights and uh, also attacking the unemployed and the underemployed. Uh, So there was an announcement that uh, these jokers are going to increase the dole, but it's only $3.57 a day increase. And as it's been pointed out, at the same time, you have a business class that has been exposed as uh, extreme rorters yep. of the uh, job keeper program, mm. uh, with co- some companies actually uh, showing a profit on the back of this uh, corporate uh, welfare, effectively, or as uh, our friend Don likes to call it, Don Sutherland likes to call it corporate bludging. And uh, so the uh, there's there's been a call for a week of action between uh, March the fifteenth to the nineteenth. It's been coordinated by Life Get Up and uh, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and a variety of other people. Now there's been this they're working towards people realizing that there is actually a connection between these assaults on people who are dependent on us, uh, social welfare and uh, workers in Australia. So mm. that un- it's this is union business and people shouldn't be uh, cowed because there is no future in allowing the uh, liberals and the business class to undermine solidarity and a Mm. reasonable... I mean, it's like an abusive relationship. People try to uh, get into a smaller and smaller box, but eventually... There's nowhere to go. Yes, so absolutely. you have to stand up. Anyway, um, go to the uh, Life Campaign website or the a- uh, Australian Unemployed Workers Union website and you'll be able to see the uh, strategy. In, a, in Melbourne, they're hoping that they'll have a, uh, a rally at, um, that starts at Treasury Place and then proceed with speeches and then proceeds down to the Fair Work Commission. Uh, so on the 19th, on Friday, is a culminating event and they're discussing there should be uh, events in uh, country uh, rural settings as well, you know, because as someone was saying there, the guy from Wodonga was saying that, uh, the union guy from Wodonga was saying that there is absolute fear and, and worry about what's going to happen once the uh, cuts are made to uh, job seeker and keeper yep. Um, yeah. in the rural settings because uh, people have taken advantage of the uh, lending 
um, you know, these short-term lending loans and uh, other facilities yeah. uh, during yeah. the COVID period. And once there's a cut, they won't be able to service those loans. Yeah, so that that's the thing. With this announcement, it has to be taken in context of so much else that's going on. You know, even though that this is being raised by a mere $25 a day, sorry, $25 a fortnight. Oh, no, hang on. Yeah, sorry. it is. $25. Yeah, yeah, $25 a fortnight. I have to check myself on that front. Um, it's a pittance. It's an absolute pittance. Um well, even, I think even it's a that's... diversionary tactic. I mean, yes, in, the, in the sense that everybody's going to be fighting this yep. sort of yep. thing, yep. Uh, but, but rather you have than to take concentrating it in context as yeah. well. It's um, yeah, the the um, like the coronavirus supplement, this temporary measure, it's still going down by seventy five dollars at the end of March, right? So it's still going to decrease in the future. And the government comes out and says, "Oh, look, take it or leave it," as if they're you know the the, the caring parent, you know, saying, "Look, I'll." give give you an extra 50 cents for your pocket money and uh, you know you can buy with that all manner of things you know it's um oh and, and tie that up with their expensive middleman yeah the uh, cashless welfare card precisely oh, goodness me aren't we in happy happy land in australia yeah. anyway uh keep your ears and eyes open and uh, uh put in your uh, your strength to push back. Make sure you talk to people about these things that are going on because people uh, are unaware that how in the tsunami of uh, uh, hurt that is coming if any of these things are allowed to coalesce together in the future of the Australian population because Precisely. this is definitely a 1%, nine, uh, 99% uh, uh uh, fight that yes. we're we're in the midst of precisely now before we move on to our next segment um i just want to tell you that uh goongra because uh, we've been uh on solidarity breakfast we've been uh show uh been host to some dispatches from uh, escapes land very nice stuff now goongra if you uh, know about the bush up there is up at the top of uh you know about it a couple of hours up from Orbos, basically, and it's right near the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the Irinanda hmm. uh, Plains. Yeah, now, beautiful land. Yeah, beautiful land, except that they're in the midst of uh, logging once again. Now, mm. they've sent us a message saying that, dear trusted forest protectors, East Gippsland forests are called, calling for support. Community members have set up an occupation near the Irinandra Plateau, Gungra, in some of the last unburnt forests. They are inviting folks to come to camp to learn about the forest, direct action, citizen science, and come together to campaign for some really special areas and support the brave person occupying a tree sit. And where was this happening again? Uh, oh, stopping immediate, imminent logging of the area. The lo- location... Thank you. <laughs> About 40 minutes north of Gungra, access is on 2WD-friendly uh, uh, roads. Please be as self-sufficient as possible, but there will be some cooking facilities, shelter and water. There is reception at the spot as well as campers will not be in a, a restable position. So mm. they've, they've established a tree sit. Um, they're very worried about the uh, the forest. Uh, if you want Twitter updates, uh, go to um, 
ampersand, is that how you say it? The, yes, the yes, A that is. with the little Oh, well, no, hang on. The ampersand is the and symbol, so that's, you know, shift seven. Yeah, it's so at. At. Uh, yes. A, yep. Irinundra. So E-R-R-I-N-U-N-D-R-A. You want some updates? You can find out. And perhaps we'll be able to catch up with them to find out how they're going. Yep, so to give you folks an idea, Erinundra is uh, about, look, it is a it is a bit of a day drive. It's um, about six hours east of Melbourne, um, but it is beautiful. And it would be a great shame if that was logged. So really, get out, get your voice heard. And if you've got nothing better to do over Easter, show some solidarity. You know, Oh, unless you go to the Marxist conference. Oh, oh that was, <laughs> I almost forgot about that. Oh, so much is happening, yeah. This is Hugo Race, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Subscribe now. As I said, I uh, was lucky enough to hear um, an, an, a, a review of some of the things that happened and the things that were learnt from the Occupy movement, and... Uh, you will remember probably uh, <clears throat> what happened here in Melbourne, but uh, Larissa Payne uh, was in Sydney when the Occupy movement uh, was happening. She was one of the uh, uh, the activists who were uh, part of uh, making it happen. And uh, she had uh, a really fascinating look on uh, the various elements uh, of the uh, time as well as uh, what's to be learned. Uh, it, it was put on, the event was put on by MELS, that's Melbourne Activist Legal Service, those fantastic people who are at event, um, rallies uh, observing and take meticulously watching uh, in order to be able to take uh, legal action if uh, um, uh, for people who have been mozzed by the police effectively. Um they actually were established out of Occupy Melbourne, hmm. which is a fascinating outcome yes. because all those people with those skills wanted to be able to do something about what ha- what happened. Yep. Uh, be prepared. Anyway, let's hear what Larissa had to say. Mm-hmm. I'm not coming, obviously, from a legal place. I'm coming from an activist place and an organiser. Um, and I think knowing that the majority of people on this call are in XR, there's a, a lot of things that would be particularly relevant for us to learn, um, mistakes to avoid and, and that sort of thing. So to quote the film network, the international currency determines the totality of life on this planet. There is no democracy. There is only Dow, Union Carbide and Exxon. We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies. The world is a college of corporations inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business. So what did we do? We occupied with permission from and in collaboration with Gadigal people on Gadigal land. And to borrow from Dinos Christianopoulos and the Zapatistas, um, and this is a cat cry that went across Occupy, across the movement, was they tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds. So... Occupy did some experimental and instrumental things and missed the mark on others. And because of this, I'd love to think that movements today can avoid our mistakes and embrace what worked. And like any people's movement, Occupy was a product of a broader context that we won't have time to really go at today. But for anyone unfamiliar, we were part of a gorgeous global surge of protests that 
not only sought to transcend business as usual, but was very deliberately a refusal to recognise the legitimacy of a system that fused finance and government. So 2010, 2011, for anyone that was yet to tap in, it felt like the world was linking arms. Frustrated and broken from the global financial crisis, from Tunisia in the Arab Spring to the Indignados occupying squares in Spain, which was a response to almost 43% youth unemployment and protecting the idea of free space and creative commons on the internet, to the initial Occupy Wall Street protests in Zuccotti Park, which ignited the Occupy movement. Um, and, and like Anthony said, we've had occupation. We had occupations in 951 cities, 82 countries, protesting under different forms of government, which is important to consider. The Zuccotti Park protests kicked off on the 17th of September, and within four weeks, we'd organised Occupy Sydney in Martin Place, slap bang in front of the Reserve Bank. So Sydney was the longest continual occupation of the global movement, lasting for three years under the name Occupy Sydney. We were evicted one week after our first night, but returned immediately. And there was another eviction attempt in February and in July 2013, which what was left of the occupation anyway, was shut down five times, only to pop up again within a few hours. So what united us? Across borders, it was our mutual outrage at the virulent exploitative shitstorm that is unfettered global capitalism. We were protesting social and economic inequality, corporate greed, and the stronghold of corporations over government, namely the banks, some that had been bailed out, like Goldman Sachs, whose former managing director in Australia ended up becoming the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. We're also protesting a lack of legal consequences of those who orchestrated the global financial crisis, looking in awe at a place like Iceland who actually jailed their bankers. And if you haven't come across that, duck, duck, go it. It'll make you giddy. It's delightful. Um, and of course, we protested the increasing disparity between the hyper-rich that we deemed the 1% and the rest of us, the 99%. So when we spoke about the 1%, we weren't referring to your bourgeois aunt who lives in a suburban mansion, but those elite hoarders and exploiters who today would look like a Jeff Bezos, or Rupert Murdoch or Gina Reinhart. For Extinction Rebels that are here, that big fat 99% and 1% graphic on the inside cover of This Is Not A Drill, that's direct from Occupy. The Bernie Sanders campaign got it from us. The vast decentralised nature of the movement meant that every occupation moulded to the specificities of its own political and cultural context. We simply didn't swallow verbatim what came out of Zuccotti Park. While the middle class in America was being obliterated by predatory lending with mass foreclosure of family homes and the assholes on Wall Street were drinking Dom Perignon in the face of our comrades, literally, Australia was comparatively untouched by the GFC. We were high on temporary extractivist profit, busy she'll be writing in iron ore glory and Labor government delusion. So in some ways, Occupy as an idea seemed, on the surface at least, premature for much of Australia, and it wasn't. If anything, it was a sounding the alarm of what was to escalate and worsen. So here we are 10 years later, being sent down the gangway of climate chaos and ecological collapse by a government captured entirely by fossil fuel corporations. So the blueprint of corporate greed and the stronghold of, the corporation, of corporations over democracy remains. So... Our occupations were localised, taking what resonated from occupations elsewhere and making them our own. So I can only speak for Sydney, but we became a big, beautiful mutual aid network where anyone who felt like a feed at any time of day could get one. Occupy Sydney developed into the Sydney 24-7 homeless safe space and kitchen, which 
was the only 24-7 place of food stress could access guaranteed free food in New South Wales. The name was changed from Occupy to get the state off our back and it kind of worked. So, or even though our political purpose remains. So the lesson there is, I think, to be prepared to move and adjust with the political weather. You don't need to be stagnant and locked into certain things. As far as what it looked like, um, a big bloody mess is what it looked like. It was organised chaos, I promise. Um, we organised and functioned laterally, so in conversation circles. There was no hierarchy, although as some of you from XR would understand, people stepped into skilled roles or areas of interest that benefited the collective. We listened, learned, shared and discussed not just movement politics and bureaucratic process, but ideas for a better and fairer world. Many people coming across instrumental thinkers for the first time from First Nations sovereign elders to Murray Bookchin. And we functioned autonomously and were rooted in decentralisation, mutualism, working groups, the General Assembly, where we tried to utilise consensus decision making um, and defiance. We grew a garden, installed a library, organised job support services, a street wardrobe, laundry services, blanket patrol for rough sleepers, which exist to this day, MVDA street medic and legal training, yoga classes, yarning circles, children's activities, art, music, sport, poetry, and ample beautiful trouble. So, you know, I, I read in the blurb for this event and have come across similar interpretations from various academics and commentators who went there that we sought to transform the centre of major cities into common spaces. And that's true, but it's only part of the picture. We weren't trying to set up common spaces for the sake of shutting down cities, for example. That was not our goal. We sought to function outside the status quo. So that's outside the existing political order by creating common spaces. It wasn't about shutting down, but reclaiming public spaces for public purpose. Another defining characteristic, and in my opinion, a success of Occupy was authentic, meaningful solidarity. And that was, you know, something that was touched on. We could have done a lot better, but it was very much um, a lesson that XR can apply. So the late David Graeber said that revolutionary constituencies always involve a tacit alliance between the least alienated and the most oppressed. So solidarity was essential to the spread of the movement, which was truly internationalist, because inequality is something that binds all of us at all intersections, albeit to varying degrees, and a direct result of the corporate greed and capitalist system that we we're protesting. So this has been misinterpreted by critics as a watering down of our message, but really we were showing that corporate greed smashes all of us. So a couple of examples from Sydney. Um, when I organised our initial march to Martin Place, there was a refugee rally slotted at the same time. I touched base with the organisers. We adjusted our start time to when they finished and we joined their rally and they joined Occupy. Our march was co-led by the MUA and other unions who were very much a part of Occupy and First Nations activists, some who had been occupying their own land in the form of tent embassies for years. Occupiers organised in solidarity with other occupations. So for the Melbourne people, you might remember when Sarah was stripped naked of her tent, which she was wearing as clothes, Sydney decided to dress in tents um, as an expression, as in literal tents, as an expression of solidarity and even rocked up to the Downing Centre courts in our tents. Needless to say, we were not admitted, but we confused the hell out of the police. Um, and lastly, a couple of examples, we responded to calls for solidarity from occupiers in Greece who were protesting austerity and squatters of empty buildings to draw attention to Sydney's housing affordability crisis. So with all this talk about solidarity, it was as much as a challenge 
even a concern as it was a success, which is a complicated binary, but it's worth exploring. So Occupy attracted everyone. And by everyone, I mean those who I've mentioned to the hacktivists that beautifully disrupted Visa and MasterCard for refusing to process donations to WikiLeaks, to Anonymous with a capital A, which was a collective of hacktivists appearing online in Guy Fawkes masks, which, and it was a critical vehicle for the spread of the movement to varying revolutionary ideologies, which sometimes manifested in the stacking of general assemblies, to the 4chan libertarians, many of whom have since become full-fledged Nazis. So for a similar reference today, I guess you could consider QAnon. Now, I'm not going to give them any of my oxygen, except as a lesson for movements today, and namely XR. To grow a movement in a truly regenerative way, in a way that welcomes every part of everyone, we can't be open to fascists because that ideology automatically renders us unregenerative and not inclusive. Similarly, if we are solely focused on demanding governments declare a climate emergency within the current and very real political context, we risk inviting a fascist response. So historically, when governments declare states of emergency, they've been known to send in the military, which is always accompanied by repression and violence. How can we avoid this? We send her out there demand for a citizens assembly and more simply commit to being a fascist free zone. So the 1% rely on fascist thinking, often replicating it in corporate structures. We don't need it in organizing spaces that are fighting for a livable world. And this includes eco-fascists that are worryingly very active within mostly white environmentalist spaces. So I've covered some, but I'll briefly mention a couple of other successes and challenges. Um, that, like I said, can be defined as both. So one of the things that traditional activists love to focus on and criticise is that the movement had no critical path, no clear theory of change and no demands. Lol. Okay, so... <laughs> but the re Look, the refusal to make demands, to quote Graeber, he said that quite self-consciously, a refusal to recognise the legitimacy of the existing political order of which such demands would have to be made Direct action is ultimately the defiant insistence on acting as if one is already free. So while ideologically that ignites my heart, I also see the importance of Frederick Douglass's sentiment when he said that power concedes nothing without a demand. As for Occupy Sydney though, while we didn't have an explicit demand, we were pressing for banking reform and an inquiry into the banking sector. A few years later, ironically under the Turnbull government, we got a Royal Commission into the banks. So rather than come up with a vision for a new political order, Occupy's initiators sought to help create a way for everyone to do so. So another thing, we shifted the conversation, the concept of the 99% and the 1%, which is now part of activist and political vernacular. Occupy Sydney specifically birthed 34 different groups still organising today, and even XR was co-founded by some of the Occupy London organisers. Now, I've just, I need a sense, I feel like I need to repeat this because it's, I think it's such an emphatic part of, of what we need to consider is it was truly internationalist. So something XR should embrace if we're serious about our purpose. So as Carl Sagan said, carbon molecules don't have passports. And lastly, something that I learned from Occupy that I believe was a success was how our movement rested on a strategic preference for prefigurative politics. So that's the idea that the organisational form that a movement takes should embody the kind of society that we wish to create. Graeber identified that in one year, we managed to identify a core problem of the toxic system, and that's the fusion of corporate interests, finance and government. In this country, it's a case of state capture. Occupy's proposed solution was the creation of a genuinely democratic culture. So my fear um, that if movements today aren't centred on this, 
we will never achieve the systems change necessary for a truly livable and just world. So lastly, never forget, they can't evict or arrest an idea. So keep those conversations happening. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. federal government announced this week a miserly $3.25 per day increase to the job seeker payment after many, many decades of no increase at all. Not only is the amount far from sufficient for people to survive, but also the government, as it tends to do with anything regarding welfare, released also a new series of further punitive measures regarding job seeker recipients. So um, requirements for people on JobSeeker to prove that they've applied for 20 jobs per pay period in a period where jobs are very scarce to find. And regarding the mention of punitive measures by the government every time they make reforms to welfare, ongoingly on Over the Wall we've been covering the cashless welfare card, which is a story that continues to burn and make people suffer in remote rural regions. And very frustratingly, listeners continues to escape the attention of mainstream media and people in the big cities. The government is doing it by stealth, introducing the cashless welfare card into remote rural regions, particularly regions with high First Nations peoples populations, and people in the cities are remaining largely oblivious to the impacts this card is having upon people's ability to manage income, the decrease in their ability to actually show any credit rating because 80% of their income is quarantined and not recognised by banks. We've been reporting on this issue now for a number of years and one of the main people we've spoken to is Catherine Wilkes from the Say No to the Cashless Welfare Card campaign. We began this week by speaking to Catherine about the ongoing trial legislation that was passed last year 
and a report by Adelaide University that was not released by Senator Rustin in time for Parliament senators to consider the impacts that were shown in this Adelaide University report on welfare recipients getting the cashless welfare card. Let's speak to Catherine Wilkes now and ask her about this situation regarding the cashless welfare card. The federal government did not succeed late last year in passing legislation to make the cashless welfare card permanent, but they did get a vote through the Senate to continue the ongoing so-called trials of the cashless welfare card in the trial areas for another couple of years. And what has been the response of people impacted by the cashless welfare card to this continuation of the trials? I know that it devastated a lot of the people that I deal with because a lot of them tuned in to watch that vote that night on our Facebook page, we streamed it. Then to see Sterling Griff not show up in the chamber. In fact, he left the building so that he didn't have to vote, which gave the government the vote to allow it to continue. I think that was the biggest betrayal from Central Alliance, considering that for the last two years, they've been telling people they would not vote this legislation through without the Adelaide University evaluation. It was part of their deal that they wouldn't vote on it without the evaluation being there to see. And Rustin wasn't releasing that report. It only got released this week. If it had been released back then when it was supposed to, there's no way that they could have voted this to continue. Absolute failure. And it's just cruel to keep this going on and on. And now they'll use any leverage they can to try and get First Nations people off their basics cards and onto cashless debit card, but through the NT provider, which will be the NT Credit Union, not Indu, right? Because they've already signed the contracts and they admitted they'd already signed the contracts prior to that vote. They said that in the Senate. They'd already signed up the contracts. Signed contracts for a, a couple of years. Yeah. yeah, yeah, with the NT Credit Union to be the provider of the card in the Northern Territory. The deal was done the day beforehand with Centre Alliance. And the result is now that people feel defeated. The morale, it, it really knocks the wind out of people, knowing that another two years of this, and it's cruel, it really is. But this whole system is punitive and cruel, as we can see now, the job agencies, and now this pitiful $3.25 a day increase. And the job agencies will have more power to cut people off more. It's, the whole system is broken, punitive and cruel. But the mutual obligations that they're talking about, they're handing all the power to the job agencies, right? So the job agencies can choose this intense training. And if the kids can't get there or they don't show up for something, bang, they get cut off. Mm. You know, it's just handing more power to the private sector that the government is shirking their responsibility. By handing over the powers that government is supposed to be in charge of to the private sector for profit, right? This should be illegal for a start. I mean, why should these private investors have all this power over people to decide whether someone eats or doesn't? That's how much power they've got. They decide if you're five minutes late because your bus got in late or you didn't even have money for a bus and you couldn't get there or you're in hospital or something like that, they can cut you off. They can make you homeless. They can make you starve. We're talking about the job agencies and the huge, amounts, huge amounts of money are pouring into those job agencies yeah. for, for decades. They shouldn't have the control over people's payments. That was always a Centrelink issue. 
and it shouldn't be up to the job agencies. It should always remain under protections of our laws, under the Social Security Act with Centrelink. You know, because these people aren't protected by the Social Security Act when all the power is handed to these private entities. This is one of the issues with the cashless debit card. The people on the card are exempted from the protections of payments under the Social Security Act. And anybody on a card is exempted from that protection under law to suit the private company of Indu. And they're not responsible for anything if they stuff anything up and cause somebody damages, financial loss. It's up to the discretionary person at the counter that you see it's their personal decision if they want to cut you off. At it's, the job agency. That's right. It's the person on the other end of the phone that Indu who decides, no, we don't want you spending that money, right, on something that's quite legitimate, but that person decides you can't afford that or, no, we don't want you to spend all your money on that or go and get after pay or zip pay and then you can pay it off on there. We're not going to release your funds, but we'll run you into more debt. We'll approve you to go into more debt. You know what I mean? And then we'll use it against you because after pay and zip pay, have a negative reaction on your credit ratings and are seen as you not being able to manage your funds because you're making use of a lender to pay it, you know, get it now, pay it later. What has been the ongoing situation with surcharges and extra costs related to the injury? People will still be copying their surcharges from when they use the card because there's always surcharges on cards, on all cards, right? See, Indu doesn't charge a surcharge on their account right? But Visa is the provider. And Visa still charges all of its normal charges that all Visa card holders get charged. When you use a Visa debit card, depending on the business, you will incur those sort of fees. And Indu makes it very clear, they are not responsible for the third party fees charged by somebody like BPay and that sort of thing, or your bank, if they do allow a transfer of funds above what you're allowed per month, right? Your bank will charge you $10 for receiving that money because it's coming from outside the banking sector. And to put that into financial terms, we've heard many stories for people on say JobSeeker who are making decisions that they just can't simply afford to buy things like vegetables because that extra $20, $30 they just haven't got. So when you put these surcharges in, that's the reality. It's for people who are making decisions about what not to buy because they can't afford essentials, it's taking even more money away from them. Every region, people are locked out of the markets. So, for instance, Saduna has a little weekly market that sells fresh bread, jams and spreads and fruit and vegetables. People on the cashless debit card can't go there. So they go to the supermarket and they have to buy more processed foods and they pay more for their food at the supermarket $5 for a loaf of bread and things like that. You know what I mean? Whereas they might get a, a fresh baked loaf of bread at that market for a dollar and they get access to fruit and veg that's good quality and fresh, locally produced, not shipped in frozen supermarket stuff from the wholesaler in Adelaide. You've got the same situation up here where you've got fruit and veg sellers selling stuff as an example. This is just an example. Say something that the fruit and veg seller is selling for $2 a kilo but Coles will be selling it for $12 a kilo. So the person has to go to Coles to buy it. It's mm. not as fresh because it's been in cold storage and been carted all over the country, but they can't buy from the local farmer 
and get the fresher product cheaper where they would normally save money. So every which way they go to save money and get as much out of their dollar as they used to be able to do, they can't. They just can't do it because they're forced to spend more money. And to put that in context, listeners, the injury card cannot be used at many retailers, particularly small retailers like farmers markets, markets. They have to register specially to be able to use the injury card, those retailers, and many don't. So consumers are forced into the hands of spending their money with and for the big corporations. Thanks again to Catherine Wilkes for speaking on Over the Wall. And we'll have the second part of Catherine's interview next week. A week solidarity breaky team listener when ASIC, the so-called caring business class watchdog, which sadly has difficulty digesting its role due to its lack of teeth and or reluctance to use them, has come up with an inspired idea to nail corporate crooks. Not sure corporate crooks isn't a tautology. ASIC will give immunity from prosecution to the first person reporting corporate crime in an organisation, hoping this will lead to a stampede, hoping to be the first, and bad luck for the second if someone got in before her or him. The get-out-of-jail-free card will apply to offences such as market rigging, insider trading and dishonest conduct in the course of carrying on a financial services business, it said, leading to a predictable response from the caring business class taking their proper and justified complaints to government. Criminalising market rigging, insider trading and dishonest conduct would make it impossible to carry on a financial services business. They made a strong argument. The I'd Hate to See It Go Bad award to SpaceX and Elon Musk, the profits company, hoping to send a rocket and maybe people to Mars. After all, we're running out of planet to stuff up, so let's go and stuff up another one. Anyway, after the previous test flight of a prototype rocket crashed and blew up on landing, the company said at the latest trial, we had again another great flight. Another? Again? The previous one blew up. Oh, and this one? Yeah, it too crashed in a fireball. We had another great flight, he boasted. We've just got to work on that landing a little bit. <laughs> he really said that. SpaceX, your I'd hate to see it go bad award is on its way. Let's hope the award doesn't crash land. In the What Can We Say department, former Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Brackets Disgraced, our old mate Barnacle, says, in fact, has moved a motion that the Renewable Energy Funding Agency fund a brand new state-of-the-art coal-fired power station and a nuclear power plant. Let's stress that. Let's say that again. Barnacle says the Renewable Energy Fund should fund a coal-fired power station and a nuclear power plant. It's not often the week that was is left speechless, but what can we say?
Although competing with Barnacle in the What Can We Say department, Furniture Big Shot nicked the profit Scarly, which announced a 90%, that's right, 90% profits increase to 40.6 mil after happily copping 3.6 mil in government wage subsidies. Asked whether he would hand the government handouts back, Nick mused, it's a difficult one. <laughs> sure is, Nick, what can we say? Barnacle's strong competition for Brain of the Year, the Minister for Keeping Us Secure and Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, denies any wrongdoing in ignoring expert advice on community grants and handing them out to marginal caring business class party seats just before the last election. Presumably these seats could spend the community grants on a few extras for the sports facilities the government also kindly handed them in a timely manner. Uh, how come they all went to your seats, Pete? I didn't know they were, you know, like all marginal caring business class party, like, you know, seats. Uh, then why did you ignore your departmental expert advice? Because they wanted to hand the money to seats that weren't, you know, like marginal caring business class party, like, like seats, uh, which you knew nothing about. Nothing. Like you know, nothing. On Constable Duffer, the issue that had the Canberra Press Gallery, gallery peeing themselves with excitement this week is who knew what and when, with the only certainty being that big supremo Scuttlebin son, a.k.a. Scummo, knew nothing at any time which being the norm doesn't seem worth getting too excited about, but the Minister for being put on the defensive knew one day and didn't know the next day and then wasn't sure whether she knew or not the next day, but whatever, she didn't know, she most definitely didn't share with Scuttlebem before heading into hospital looking as fit as the submarine contract she also doesn't seem to know too much about. While the aforementioned Constable Duffer said he knew, but most definitely did not tell Scuttle them what he knew, which may just come down to the fact that he didn't know what he knew. But, uh, yes, why didn't you tell Scuttle them? Uh, because it was like, you know, a, a sensitive matter. So Scuttle them shouldn't know about sensitive matters? It makes it easier to, to, you know, adopt the principle of, like, you know, denial. Uh, so is the fact that no one tells Scuttlebem anything the reason he knows nothing? Uh, uh, like, you know, could, could you like, uh, uh, like, like say that again? In the Who Do We Barrack For department, this corporate battle over the advertising fortunes generated by news, two behemoths face back off or else and gaggle versus behemoths Lord Rupert of Wapping, Kerry Stacks of Profit, the nine foul facts no longer foul facts empire, behemoth versus behemoth, filthy rich versus filthy rich, Mark versus Lord Rupert. Tough one, listener. Who do we barrack for? And how dare the US of the UN of the US of the world criticise True Blue Aussie over our climate change, if there is such a thing, policy, when we're reaching our targets in a canter. It's none of their bloody business, despite the US of climate change person John Kerry accusing True Blue Aussie of undermining efforts to address climate change, if there is, when Scuttle them has made it clear we will address climate change our way, the true blue Aussie way, with technology like coal-fired power stations and 
gas plants and fracking and clean, beautiful nuclear power plants if Barnacle gets his way, which makes a lot of fracking sense, but also makes it, it sensible for SpaceX to sort out that Mars problem as soon as possible. Mentioned last week, mining and pastoral filthy rich or the filthy rich Twitty mine the forest, brackets unless it's on my vast property, Twitty's commitment to the indigenous people on whose land is his vast property. Well, stroke of bad luck. The Western Australian government is investigating a possible breach of the Aboriginal Heritage Act by Twitty in clearing a sensitive site at a place called Wheelamurra Creek. But we can't blame Twitty. Elders were supposed to attend on February 22 to ensure no disruption of sacred sites and artefacts as ordered by the permit authority, but, quote, a manual transcription error by Fortescue staff meant they did the work on February 1, with no elders present to ensure they did not damage sacred sites. And what thanks does poor Twitty get for a small mistake anyone can make? OK, OK, it probably made him filthy richer, but the Eastern Garuma Aboriginal Corporation had the audacity to suggest we didn't expect the mining industry's poor behaviour to change until such time as the government and the public, uh, public start to hold mining companies to account. Bloody upstarts getting in the way of progress. Suppose one way to avoid little matters like manual transcription errors could be to, dare we say it, just don't dig up the place in the first place. Finally, this Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission into the Cook Casino. Poor Jamie. Poor, poor Jamie. Isn't Schadenfreude so enjoyable, listener? Our only comment, given the New South Wales finding of criminality and malfeasance was largely based on the Melbourne Casino, why do we need a repeat performance? And if we do, generated by that criminality and malfeasance, why shouldn't, this is a ridiculous thought, but why shouldn't JB and the Crook Casino team meet the full multi-million dollar costs rather than the public purse? Back in the Joan Kerner days, she appointed retired Supreme Court big Xavier Connor to investigate whether we should have a casino, which he strongly recommended against on the grounds that, hard to believe, casinos attract criminal elements. Who would have thought? But then along came Jeff Foot in mouth and the rest is history. With the righteously distressed No Hypocrisy Award of the Week too, Jeff, for now attacking the current state government for allowing all this criminality to happen. Oh, and given the public purse's reliance on the gambling dollar, what chance the Crook Casino losing its licence altogether? I'll leave us pondering that one, listener. Good morning. And yes, you're back with Annie and Jordan. And uh, of course, uh, Kevin is so right, so right. And on the line, we've got Andrew Giles. G'day, Andrew. How are you? Hey, Andrew. Yeah, g'day. Good morning. Yeah, yeah. Good to talk to you. You're outside the uh, McCormick's uh, factory in Clayton at right at this moment. And mm. uh, we're hoping that you might be able to give us an understanding of what's going on there. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, as I say, we're out here now out the front of McCormick's. Um, our members have uh, decided to take protective industrial action um, over over an agreement dispute that they've been negotiating, or the agreement has expired five years ago, oh. which means that we've been negotiating throughout that time. 
and our members haven't received a pay increase. And, and today the company are not willing to, to budge on that position. Hmm. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, five years, they've uh, just been uh, keeping you guys at the same low wage or, you know, uh, uh, stagnant wage, even though inflation has been increasing. So you've been taking a wage cut. That, that's correct. And, and, and we say it's a disgrace. And, you know, throughout that five-year period, we know that McCormick's bottom line has increased by 40%. Throughout that time, and, and in real terms for our members, their wages have decreased by 6.7%. Well, we, is, we is like that, to... Is that 40% just for this year, or is that successively year on year? That, that's throughout that five-year time frame. Right, okay, yeah. That's still very significant for growth in, in that company, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And we know last year was a record year for them. Mm. You know, with the pandemic, our members working every single day coming in while the company continued to make profits and record profits at that throughout that 12-month time as well. Yeah, it's, and it's not just the money, is it? They're actually trying to cut into your conditions. That's correct. That's correct. So the members, all, all the members want is to maintain all of the current conditions that they've enjoyed uh, since working here and the, the conditions that have been negotiated previously and to get a pay increase that reflects the hard work that they do. And the company simply want to attack that and take those conditions away from them. Well, well, the conditions are things like meal breaks. Yeah, that, that's one of them. So they want the removal of paid meal breaks um, for, for shift workers. Um, they're attacking the shift loadings. They're attacking the, the right to work overtime. And, and the structure of the agreement that provides for a secure workforce, a, a permanent workforce, and they want to attack that. Well, uh, you've... Um... I mean, this has been going on for five years, really. Uh, what has happened that has made the workers so uh, uh, upset uh, that they've yeah. decided that, you know, this is this is a do-or-die effort now? Mm. Sure, sure. I think like many workers, working through the pandemic, food workers... Um, you know, the, the challenges that, that all workers face, particularly our food members, face working every single day throughout the pandemic, putting themselves and their family members at risk, coming into work every day. While, while a lot of us were told to stay home, uh, our members didn't have that privilege. And, you know, five years is a very long time. It's a very long time. And they're at that point now where enough is enough. And they're standing up and they're going to fight and they're going to win. McCormick uh, did put out a statement saying that um, the supply chain of some of the products coming out of this factory wouldn't be affected because there was um, diversification coming in from other factories and um, there was still adequate supply. Um, the business, therefore, doesn't seem to be too phased by this on the surface, but how are you actually finding the reaction so far and where are the uh, negotiations at right now? Yeah, so what we say and what we know to be true is that that's not the case. Um, if I was one of their customers, I would have serious concerns. We, we know that the work our members do and the amount of product that they produce on a daily basis that kept them running, that made them those profits last year, uh, that work is simply not happening. And, and, and to that end, we say there are going to be uh, uh, disruptions and problems for the customers. So this is really just uh, them putting a good face on it and doing the strategic uh approach to trying to belittle the work that your members are involved in, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Now, you've got you've actually got a picket outside the factory? Uh, so we're taking protected industrial action out the, out the front. 
we're, we're stationed on the at, at the front of the site. Um, but yeah, as I say, it's protective industrial action. Yeah, right. And uh, ha- uh, how long do you think this is going to go on for? Our members are prepared to, to stay here as long as it takes. As long as it takes. Good on you. Now, now the other thing is, uh, I was just wondering. Uh, now, this is something happening for your workers. Now, um, with the stuff that's going on at a, a federal level with the uh, IR laws that the federal government wants to push through and generally uh, this horrible sort of undermining of uh, payments to people on the dole, that type of stuff, um, do you see what's going on for your members as part of that kind of uh, attack I mean, let's face it, on the working class. Absolutely. It, it, it's a struggle. The working class struggle every day, and it's it's more and more, and these laws are, are just going to compound that, and, and that's why it's so important that our members and all, all members in the movement stand up and, and fight back and say enough is enough. Precisely. Yeah, yeah no loyalty yeah. from your uh, company, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so what do you want, what could uh, listeners do to help you, to, to support you? Sure. So we've already seen a, a great deal of support from the community. Um, you know, particularly we've, we've had a lot of uh, community interest and people coming down to support, show solidarity to our members here. Um, you know, there's, there's plenty of uni students that have been coming down and supporting and you know, anyone that can come down and, and help out and drop some supplies off to our members and, and show that solidarity will go a long way. So what's the address? It's 63 to 71 Fairbank Road, Clayton South. Thank you very much for getting back to us. Not a problem. Thank you. Good luck, Andrew. I'll come by through the week to see how you're going and be sure to honk the horn out the front. Awesome. Thank you very much. See ya. G'day. My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your dial. And you're back. Uh, that was great. That was an impromptu, really uh, lucky uh, The magic pick-up. of live radio. Yeah, magic yeah. of live radio. It's <laughs> good to hear what's going on out there in South Clayton. Mm. Now we're going to hear what's happening in uh, Myanmar. Uh, this is Weiwei... Uh, what's Weiwei Nu? Weiwei Nu and her uh, uh, summation of what's going on there. Mm. Military, uh, in, in my uh, observations, I think military make this very calculated move, very planned. Um, the uh, election fraud allegation was not actually, um, you know, it, it was actually, I guess it was actually planned, you know. So I, many of us do not believe that there has been like widespread and systematic electoral fraud. You know, there may be some electoral, I mean, all right, irregularities, but it might not be as uh, the military has been accusing. So, but yet, you know, they have planned this coup for a long time uh, for maybe for many, many motivations among them. It may be, yes, you know, as Hunter said, maybe may online general, uh, the personal motivations uh, to be, uh, to take control over the over the country as well as to uh, keep sustain his businesses and the military businesses in in general. Uh, however, the response from the public it's been quite extraordinary. So I am sure that he was not expecting this big 
uh, and extraordinary reactions from the public. And it started from these civil servants, civil civil servants, and and uh, a, a CDM movement uh, initially from uh, from um, uh, from uh, doctors um, and other civil servants. And then the next days, um, the 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 young people, labor activists, uh, youth activists came out. Then following they, the uh, the 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 protest has grown. And it's day by day the protest uh, is growing. So now we have one of the biggest uh, protests in all time uh, uh, on 22nd of February, where we mark a uh, call that day as two five days, two five twos, uh, five twos revolution, spring revolutions, where uh, local media reported that. Uh, Maybe 20 million people have joined the protests across the country, but I'm not sure the the, the verification, the, the validity of the number, but some local media reported as 20 million people across the country, over 300 uh, township has joined the protests on, um, on 22nd February. Um, however, we also, have been seen over the past three weeks, uh, the um, increase in intimidation threat by the military in many ways. Yes, we had uh, a number of killings, shot dead, and then we have now almost 700 uh, arrests. And um, we, we have this the military uh, deploying the most notorious um, um, military unit, uh, including light infantry divisions, 33, and you know at nighttime rate and and creating chaos and instability or uh, escalating fears among the among the public by many forms of threats and intimidation. Despite of all of this, you know people come out. People continue to come out of the street and continue to protest against against the uh, military. And they are fearful, of course, they are fearful of uh, retaliations. They know what can, how the military can be brutal against them. And some of them even have their, um, you know, even have their uh, blood types on their arms uh, written. They prepare, they are prepared. You know, they are prepared. Young people in Myanmar today are prepared to have such retaliations, but they are committed they are dedicated to take this military down by any means they can. So now it's not just the uh, civil servants, but it's the entire country, the entire younger generations with many forms of campaign, many forms of campaign that include the uh, boycott, the campaign on boycotting the military's products. So the protesters, the young people in Myanmar are desperately trying to stop the military and trying to disturb the governance systems, including economy and all other sector. And I think this is uh, astonishing. It is something that's incredible to see how people, uh, to see how people of Myanmar hate military dictatorship and military institutions as a whole. I think it's really interesting, the point that you made about the, the, the first, this was planned, 
and also that people were prepared. Now, that might not be a message that's really um, getting through in the Western media coverage on this. This isn't something that just spontaneously happened. I think that's really interesting. But, you, I mean, you're a human rights activist. And what are your main concerns now about the human rights situation in Myanmar and uh, moving forward? Yeah. So I think uh, two things. One, you know, we know how military dictatorship is look like. We lived through that. And many people know, many older generation know, younger people today, they have more, they have uh, reached the, uh, to the globe. You know, they, they, they make connection to the world. And now they see the, what freedom look like, they understand, and they don't want to go back to the military uh, dictatorships. Um, however, you know, uh, like, knowing what military can be look like we are we have we are already started seeing the some of these repressive and uh, brutal activities against the uh, public uh, including um you know like from the internet shutdown to the um, and making directive to uh, to to repeal this draconian um, laws so that they uh, take away people's privacies, uh, freedom of speech, expressions and assembly uh, and, and you know, public protections in general. We didn't have much, but now they're trying, they're trying all these decisions and directive to remove all of this. And, um, you know, the arbitrary arrest, extrajudicial killing, uh, all of these are started, already started. And we will see it will escalate further once they are able to normalize the coup and legitimize the their 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 uh, their coup. So we will see, you know, escalations of these human rights violations, repressions in the ethnic areas as well, including in Rakhine State. So the second thing is about, you know, this is the military that committed genocide against the Rohingya crimes against humanity and war crimes against other ethnic communities, and. I think, you know, this is, this is terrifying, you know, to let these generals to run the government, the country again. And what we are, you know, we, we need to be ready to see recurrence of such uh, international gross, uh, hum, uh, gross crimes, you know, that is what we are heading to. If we're not able to stop the military, that is what I am frustrated the most about. And you know, first and most importantly, we cannot let these genocide suspects a criminal to to rule the country. And it will be appalling for the world to let these people to rule the country without holding them on their criminal accountability, knowing the understanding the military in Myanmar. I don't want to be that optimistic at this point. Uh, it is too early to be optimistic. I don't think they planned to return um, the power anytime soon. And by seeing all the move that they have uh, in the past three weeks, all these, the, you know, like upside down change of the governance. And, um, and that has been, that has, that's give, you know, already give uh, a signal that they don't plan to return uh, the power or the, the reverse situations anytime soon. And I think that is why it is very, very critical, like young people, people of Myanmar, 
are craving are they are doing everything they can to to take this military down but the world is not along with us yet so with that we need to have both side by side together so that we will be able to reverse the situation otherwise i wouldn't be any uh, i wouldn't be overly optimistic on democratic future or even uh, you know on uh, on uh, other issues so what we need is yes the us put a little bit of sanctions and then eu today uh, uk and the the canada and then eu today announced uh, the 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 cotton development aid uh, to government directly and uh, redirecting them to their civil society and young uh, youth groups in myanmar so i think these are great steps but we need to see a more collective uh, international response and we haven't seen anything from the um from the australia substantial yet apart from the call yesterday the other day so australia has a very strong relationship with myanmar economically and diplomatically and uh, even militarily there are many many ways that myanmar and australia has ties um already i mean ha has been like uh, engagement and all of this uh business and other ties and you know it has it, there has to be something um, you know need to be done and i agree on the uh diplomat uh, the development aid and any sort of development aid should not go to the military for um, you know at all and it should redirect to the civil society groups at the same time we want to see australia at some point standing strong with the government with the people of myanmar and at least you know try to stop some of the direct um, military uh, the businesses that uh, that is uh, you know that has tied to the myanmar military's uh, businesses like uh, myanmar economic holding or you know, mehl or mec and other military military businesses i think you know th those kind of review and actions is required at the same time we're calling for a more uh, you know international um uh, collective response to uh, to these situations by uh, through sanctions and through other diplomatic pressures as well as un security council the statement was not enough you know people are calling even calling for peacekeeping force i mean it's not realistic but what i'm saying is giving a picture what people are how people uh, hate the military and how they want to change this situation now so you know we are calling for reconvening uh, the un security council and adopting a stronger resolution that include global arms embargo and um and also even a referral of the situations of myanmar to icc i don't know why people undermine the suffering of the people in myanmar i don't know why people uh, don't take seriously about the fact that we have genocide crimes against humanity these are ongoing these are not a, this i mean they it happen in a large scale and it's still ongoing and these are something that we must stop immediately why as we talk about military dictatorship and and unless we are able to uh, you know step up on it and face the reality and you know take a harsh uh, step we're not going to see any kind of democratic future in myanmar anytime soon uh, so i think you know this is very important on the other hand yes people are motivated and you know we are seeing some 
level of uh, solidarity and understanding that the fact that military is a common enemy. However, we need to understand this military is very, very good at dividing people. You know, we are seeing a tendency uh, for the military to scapegoat Rohingya again. We are already seeing this likelihood, you know, possibility there. And this is very dangerous path we are heading to. And that is why we need, uh, you know, uh, a radical response at this point. We, I don't think any, uh, like, yes, the, the ASEAN foreign minister is uh, visiting tomorrow, but if issues meeting with only military and coming back in within one hour. I don't know what kind of, you know, actually uh, change will bring apart from the validating and, and legitimizing the coup. And that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to nip off because we've only got a half a second to play a little bit of music. Before... And, and let me tell you, Asia Pacific Currents, every time it is such good radio. And, uh, you know, we've overstayed our welcome. So that's all right. We've got to make room for Giselle, who's coming up next. See you next week. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.